0: As a kid, going to the theater was a big deal. It was a big deal for me. Watching films on TV at home was fine. That was okay. But for whatever reason, for me, going to the theater was a magical experience. For me, this was an event. This was an occasion. For me, this was not just entertainment. It wasn't even just art. Rather, films, for me, were a portal into another dimension. I'm not even kidding. These were magical gateways for me where you could be transported into an alternative reality and live vicariously through the characters. As I watched the film, it was no longer me watching the film. I became the character. I lived the adventure. I fought the enemies. I killed the bad guys. And most of all, I got the girl in the end. (laughs) What might sound weird is that almost just as exciting to me as the main attraction were also the previews. The previews, the sneak previews, the theatrical trailers of what was to come. For me, those theatrical trailers, those previews had a kind of power. Not only to... It, uh, awaken my joy, excite my joy in the moment, thrill my heart for what is to come, but even in a sense to sustain me until uh, that movie came out, and so always giving me something to look forward to, giving me something to live for, as it were, which means I really didn't have a lot to live for at the time, but it is what it is. But, but see, here's the thing. The, the, my love of previews and theatrical trailers explains something about me. Those previews of what to come explains my unashamed obsession with prophecy and what God has planned for the end of the age. Prophecies, you understand, they are theatrical trailers. Prophecies in the Bible, you understand, they are sneak previews of what's to come and what God has planned in the future. You see, when I read the Prophets... And all that God reveals, it not only thrills my heart in the moment for what's to come, but even sustains my joy until those things actually unfold in history. And what that does is that it gives me something to live for. It gives you something to live for. Because you understand, the universe is God's theater. The world is the screen. His word is is the script, Christ is the star of the show. We are in the seats watching this thing unfold, or perhaps better, we are in the production company being used to unfold this plan. And prophecies in the Bible are dramatic, theatrical trailers designed to remind us that the paradise lost will be regained. The kingdom shattered will be restored. The serpent's head will soon be crushed. And soon the king will take his seat on the throne and make all things right in the end. and a sneak preview of what's to come, a theatrical trailer of how the world is going to end and begin again is exactly what Isaiah gives us in chapter 11 and although highly entertaining it is not mere entertainment although it is dramatic to be sure it is not a diversion from the mundane this is not an escape from reality no what you're about to see in the text is reality it is reality your future reality and god what god has planned for the end of the age and it's called the kingdom it's called the kingdom And you understand this is relevant to you because this is your future home if you belong to Christ. Because yes, Christ already has come to earth to be sure. But what you're about to see is the prophetic sequel, the second coming of Christ when he returns to earth again. Here is part two of the plan when Christ finishes what he began. And you understand this appearance of Christ a second time to establish this kingdom. This could not have come at a better time in Isaiah's prophecy, because you know, you know that lurking in the background of chapters seven through twelve is a geopolitical crisis that had the potential to wipe the people of Judah off the face of the planet. At this moment in Isaiah's text, they are staring down the barrel of not just one, but three different nations who want to invade them and obliterate them, and if God does not intervene, they easily could have done so. I mean, their very existence hangs in the balance here. And if you read the Jerusalem Times in that day, the only headlines you would see are various shades of despair, bad news, more bad news, only bad news, kind of like today, You understand, this was a nation on the verge of collapse, kind of like ours. A shattered kingdom living in sin, kind of like ours. Careening out of control, about to have a head-on collision with the wrath and judgment of God, yes, kind of like ours. I mean, all of God's promises looked here like they were about to crash to the ground, unfulfilled, and yet, and yet. What was better for the people of God than to see a preview of coming attractions? What would inject more hope into their souls than a theatrical preview of the Messiah and his future kingdom? What would have cured the fears and sustained their faith more than a prophetic glimpse of the happily ever after that God had planned for the end of the age? That's exactly what Isaiah chapter 11 is. A preview of the kingdom, a foretaste of the future, a riveting portrayal of the paradise to come. And and I cannot emphasize to you more strongly how important Isaiah chapter 11 is to the book of Isaiah, to the whole Bible, to your entire lives. I'm serious. Because you understand all the courage needed to face the unknown and the greatest terrors of a fallen world come not from an inner spring of moral resolve, but to be captivated by what the prophets have revealed to come at the end of the age. And what's to come at the end of the age is a kingdom. So here we go. Here we go this morning and next week. I want you to see from this text four glimpses of the coming kingdom. Four glimpses glimpses of the coming kingdom that you must remember must remember them to sustain your soul in a world of courage and fear that's where we're going for glimpses and since i love adjectives riveting glimpses of the coming kingdom designed to sustain your soul in a world of courage and fear, and we're going to see one, just one of those glimpses this morning, which is this first, the conquering king of the kingdom. The first thing we have got to get our heads around is the conquering king of the kingdom. And yet, and yet, to feel the impact of what you're about to see, you need to remember how far we've come. You remember chapters one through five are a prophetic pendulum swing where Isaiah alternates back and forth between bad news. And good news. When the news was bad, it was very, very bad. When the news is good, it is really, really good. And you understand the whole point of chapters one through five is to bring the apostate people of God to their knees in repentance. But then chapter six happens. Chapter 6 happens, which portrays for us this new and even disturbing shift in Isaiah's ministry. In chapter 6, you remember, Isaiah found himself in a vision of God at the very throne room himself. And in that vision, Yahweh revealed to Isaiah that he would wake up that next morning and preach to a people who would not want him to preach. That they were only going to respond in opposition. Nobody was going to repent. Nobody was going to believe. Nobody was going to yield in glad-hearted subjection to the word of God. Only defiance. And the reason for that is because mystery of mysteries, God would place an eye-blinding, heart-hardening curse on his own people so that they couldn't and wouldn't believe which is by the way the very same curse that led the people to crucify their own messiah by the way which brings us to our current unit chapter 7 through 12 and again we're behind 7 through 12 there lurks in the background this geopolitical crisis so devastating because it had the potential to wipe the people of judah off the face of the planet Which means the question lurking subcutaneously beneath the text is, who will you trust? That's the point of 7 through 12. Who will you trust? And you would agree, of course, that one of the many things that makes Yahweh so infinitely worthy of trust is not merely his ability to know the future, but his ability to control the future. That he has written the future that he has decreed, he has ordained, he has predetermined, he has predestined the future. This is going to happen and nothing is going to change that. Not Assyria, not Babylon, not Persia, not Greece, not Rome, not China, not Russia, not even the Antichrist in the future. Even though chapters 7, 8, and 9 all reveal that Assyria would invade the land and almost obliterate and crush Judah out of existence, chapter 10 reveals God would intervene. Do you remember that? Last week, God would intervene. Even though God would send Assyria to crush his own people, he would turn right around and then crush Assyria for crushing his own people. That's the paradox of providence. That's the mystery of sovereignty. Again, the issue is, Assyria's future downfall still doesn't answer the question. The question is, what's to become of the people of Abraham? What is the future for the chosen seed of Israel's race? What is to become of them? Because it does not look good. It still does not look good to this very day. What is to become of them? And the answer is, listen very carefully, the answer is a kingdom. A kingdom. Every kingdom guarantee that God ever made to his people Israel will be fulfilled. The king will return. He will rule. The earth, He will rescue the nations, he will redeem the people of Israel, and he will restore the paradise which once was lost, which is precisely what we see unfolded in Isaiah chapter 11. And so let's look at the sneak preview. Let's look at the theatrical trailer of what's to come. Look at verses 1 through 9. And a stem shall come forth from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. What are we talking about, trees? Are we talking about plants? No, we're talking about a person. And the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh, and his delight will be in the fear of Yahweh, and he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes and he will not decide by what he hears with his ears but he will judge the poor with righteousness and he will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay he will kill the wicked and righteousness will be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt about his loins and the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard and the young goat will lie down, the calf and the young lion and the fattened cattle together and a little boy will lead them. And the cow and the bear shall graze together and their young shall lie down. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. A nursing child will play around the hole of the cobra and around the den of the viper. A weaned one will stretch out his hand, but they shall not do harm and they shall not do evil in all of my holy mountain for the earth. The earth will be filled with the glory of Yahweh, the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Is that's a sneak preview of the end. Uh, That's a theatrical trailer of what's to come. If you, this is your future home. If you belong to Jesus Christ. And speaking of Jesus Christ, He is the star of the show. He is the center and the focus and the the riveting epicenter of this vision of the future. In verses one through five, we see Him and we see five features of the King to rule in His kingdom. And this is all in your notes. And so the first feature of the king is this, number one, the redemptive irony of the king. The redemptive irony of the king. Look again at verse 1. A stem shall come forth from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. That is the Messiah, right there. The promised redeemer The Savior and serpent, crushing Deliverer, promised all the way back, even as far back as Genesis 3.15, here he is. And two things that make this mention of the Messiah so provocative. Number one, this is not the first time that Isaiah has mentioned the Messiah, is it? He has done it before. He did it in chapter 7. He did it again in chapter 9. And both times he did, you remember, he portrayed the Messiah as a child. A child born from a virgin, chapter 7, whose name is Emmanuel. God is with us, a child, chapter 9, who would be wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. He would reign on the throne of David forever, all those things, absolutely. But yet, nevertheless, he would still arrive to earth the first time around, anyway, as a child. In other words, humble, unassuming, not what you'd expect. And in the same way, you notice that Isaiah refers to the future God, king, ruler of the planet, a stem and a branch. Which is interesting, isn't it? If you're going to use a tree analogy to describe the Messiah, why would you call him a stem and a branch? Why not a towering cedar? Why not a massive redwood? Why not a majestic oak that looms out of the forest? I mean, if splendor and majesty of what you're going for, little tiny shoots that sprout out of the ground is not really going to do the trick. And yet that is exactly the point. This is irony. This is irony. You see, the point of the branch and stem language is that the sovereign king to come would have none of the trappings of pompous arrogance or heavy-handed cruelty of the kings of Isaiah's day or of ours but rather, rather, this is a king who will rule the people that he loves with sovereign affection and care. Although he is no pansy mushball who will cater to the whims of a fickle crowd, this is a king and ruler who actually gives a rip about the people that he rules. Isaiah 42 says that, A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Christ says in Matthew chapter 11 that he is gentle and humble in heart. And although this was true of Christ at his first coming, it would also be true when he comes again and rules his kingdom at his second coming. This is why Isaiah's favorite title of the Messiah is Evet, servant. This is a king who serves. This is a king who shepherds. This is a king who always and only does what's best for his people. And that is true right now to you. The second factor that makes this mention of the Messiah so provocative is how it connects with the end of chapter 10. If you remember last week, the end of chapter 10 describes, believe it or not, this future invasion by a foreign army into Israel that has not even happened yet. I believe the end of chapter 10 describes a cryptic, apocalyptic preview of the nation's attempt to destroy Israel only to, be, only to be delivered by Yahweh in a crushing lumberjack defeat of the enemies of Israel. Look at chapter 10, verse 33, all the way through 11, verse 1, and notice again the trees. Notice the contrast. Behold the Lord... Yahweh of Hosts, this is chapter 10, verse 33, Yahweh of Hosts will cut off the branches of this army with terrifying power. And those who exalt themselves in the heights will be cut down, and those who lift themselves up will be laid low, and he will cut off the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one, here it is, and a stem shall come forth from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Do you see the juxtaposition? Do you see the contrast? Yahweh will take the chainsaw of his wrath in this future time of judgment, in this apocalyptic battle, and he will level the trees of this evil invading army to the ground in judgment. And yet, and yet, the damage done by this army will be a reality. The damage will be done. And that's called, that damage is called the tribulation. I believe in that. I believe that's a real thing. And in that day, it does and it will look over for the people of Israel. It does and will look like there is no hope for the people of Israel. And yet Isaiah's point in describing the Messiah as a branch who would grow and a stem who would sprout is that it's a little too early to throw in the towel on the people of Israel. Is in the future, out of the stump, charred stump of Jesse, a little stem comes forth. Out of Jesse's roots, a tiny little branch will grow and grow and grow. Out of the ash, a mighty, towering cedar of redemptive hope and salvation will grow, bearing fruit. In other words, he will save his people Israel. He will make them again like the sand of the sea. And every single promise God ever made to the people of Israel will be fulfilled. And you might think, so what? How does what's going to happen to Israel at all apply to me? Well, never forget, never forget that the reason why this matters to you is because your fate is inseparably intertwined with theirs. Your future victory is their future victory. Your future redemption is their future redemption. I've said this before. You are just going to have to make room in your theology for something a little more nuanced than believe in Jesus, get to heaven, which is true, of course. But you need to remember that this whole thing that you're involved in called Christianity is a drama of redemption with a plot. You have to understand that all of history is a salvation saga of a sovereign Savior who will single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. And that includes the nation of Israel. Let me rephrase that. Israel is at the center of that plan. The church, too. The church, too, equally so. But also Israel. So never forget that the hope being extended to the people of Judah is foundational to your own hope in Christ because God keeping his promises to them is the guarantee that he will keep his promises to you. Which brings us to the second feature of the King. A second feature of the king to come, number two, the royal lineage of the king. The royal lineage of the king, because you notice the, the interesting metaphorical language. The Messiah is not only called a branch and a stem, but you notice that he is called the stem from the stump of Jesse and the branch from his roots. And what does it mean? Well, you know why this matters, don't you? You know why it matters, because that name Jesse is used 44 times in the Bible, and every single, do, every single time it does, it refers to the exact same person. There's only one Jesse in the entire Bible, and it is the father of King David himself. And you know why that matters, don't you? Because 300 years before this moment in Isaiah, God made a promise to David, the son of Jesse, that one day one of his descendants would be a king. And he would reign forever. That a king would come and make things right in the world. A king would come and he would reverse the curse and break the spell. And he would crush the skull of the dragon. He would be a king of sovereign, infinite power. And he would restore again the paradise which was lost. And Isaiah has been really, really clear about this. The virgin-born son from chapter 7... Emmanuel, God is with us, from the line of David. Chapter 9, mighty God, the prince of peace who would come and sit on a throne, would reign on the throne of David. When Christ showed up, what did he call himself? The son of David. Romans 1-3, Paul called him the offspring of Of David, Romans 15, 12. Get this, Paul quotes this very text in Isaiah 11 and applies it rightly to Christ. Revelation 22, 16, Christ said, I am the root and the offspring of David. So, seven years before he ever even showed up to the planet here in Isaiah chapter 11 is a gripping portrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet in the text, he does not die for sinners, but he rules over the sinners he saved. So you, you understand that what Isaiah 11 is is a, is a condensed Old Testament version of Revelation 19 and 20. And so you, you see embedded in that cryptic title the root of David, the root of Jesse. I don't know if you realize this or not, but you are banking your entire lives on that title. Did you know that? You are. Because you understand what that is is a reminder of the faithfulness of God. He has made a promise. He is going to keep it. The king has come. He will come again. And when he does, paradise lost will be regained. The kingdom shattered will be rebuilt. Everything on the planet and in your lives that is backwards and painful and twisted and ruined and mutilated, and saturated with the curse of sin, which is everything, will be reversed and turned back the way it was, pristine, pre-fall, paradise-like conditions. How do we know that? Because we have it in writing. Isaiah chapter 11, the root of Jesse, will make it right. Which brings us to the third feature of the king. The third feature of the king, number three, the resplendent powers of the king. The resplendent powers of the king. A few years ago, I remember watching a video of some of the greatest theologians and pastors on the planet, in my perspective anyway, talking about complex issues of theology. I know some of these men. I'm I'm, I'm friends with a couple of them. I don't know why they're friends with me, but I'm glad to be friends with them And in the video, they're all sitting around this table and discussing complex theological issues, and as they did, they were discussing these complex theological things with absolute ease. They just seemed to draw from this endless warehouse of knowledge. And these men are towering giants of theology, and they spoke with such fluency in the language of divinity that they seemed to speak, at least this is the way I felt about it, they spoke ballet with their words. It was easy for them. And yet, it dawned on me watching this video that if you could take all of these men combined, and in fact, every single genius on the planet combined, and every genius in history combined and somehow put them into one person, they still could not hold a candle to the infinite genius of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that infinite genius we see in verse 2, look at the text. Isaiah says, and the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. Now, you see what Isaiah tells us about the Messiah to come. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. Interesting how Trinitarian that is, isn't it? The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. What does that mean? What does it mean that the spirit of Yahweh will rest upon the root of Jesse? Well, you know what this is. This is code. This is code for saying that every single thing the king would say or think or do would be executed by the sovereign power of the spirit. That the Messiah would not come and operate with merely human potential. That he's not just a really great man with a high IQ, but he is supernaturally endowed with the limitless capacity of God the spirit himself. Isaiah 42, 1, speaking of the Messiah, Yahweh says, I have put my spirit upon him. Christ speaks in 61, verse 1, and he says, the spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me to preach to the captives. And this was true of Christ when he came the first time, wasn't it? Luke 1:35 conceived in the womb by the power of the Spirit. Luke, uh, uh, Matthew chapter 4, he resisted temptation by the power of the Spirit. Matthew 12, 18, he preached his sermons by the power of the Spirit. Matthew 12, 28, he did his miracles by the power of the Spirit. And Romans eight eleven, he raised himself from the dead, you got it, by the power of the Spirit. And yet, when Christ returns to rule His global kingdom, get this, every single thing He will do will also be done in the power of the Spirit. Look at His resume in verse 2. His Spirit-given credentials to rule the planet, He will have the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of knowledge, uh, counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. You notice how every virtue on the list is prefaced with ruach. Spirit, spirit of wisdom, spirit of strength, spirit of knowledge. What does that mean? That means that every single virtue and quality of Jesus Christ will be supplied by the Spirit himself. Infinite wisdom, unlimited knowledge, never-ending strength. The divine ability, get this, to make the exact right solution, decision for the deepest dilemmas that mankind has never, ever been able to solve. This is a king who can and must be trusted. Never perplexed, never confused, never caught off guard. Everything the planet will need, he will provide trade agreements, border issues, immigration natural resources, the, the deepest political and economic problems that mankind has never been able to solve will be solved when the great high king comes to take his throne. And yet notice, notice the, the last spirit given virtue on the list. That is interesting, isn't it? That he would have the spirit of, that he would have the spirit of the fear of Yahweh. Isn't that interesting? Christ, who is God, will Fear God, and you understand this is the greatest virtue that any leader can have, because this is the greatest virtue that anybody can have. Proverbs one seven says that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs eight ten says that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs three verses seven and eight says that the fear of Yahweh is healing to the body and refreshment to the bones. Proverbs 16, verse 6 says that fear of Yahweh is how we conquer sin in our lives. And according to Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, it is the meaning of life itself. You see, this is what Adam failed to do. This is what Obama and Trump failed to do. And the greatest failure of the current president is that he does not tremble before God as the treasure of his soul when the Davidic king comes back and takes back the planet that is rightfully his, that is exactly what he will do. And I want you to look at that text there in verse 2, and I want you to look at those virtues. I want you to look at those qualities. This is big for us. You notice the wisdom. You notice the understanding. You notice the counsel. You notice the strength. You notice the knowledge. You notice the fear of Yahweh. The question becomes, the question is, what? of those things do you need in your life right now? For what situations in your life do you need divinely given wisdom and knowledge? For what perplexing scenarios in your life do you need the Lord's counsel and strength? Is there any sin lurking in your life which would give the indication that you do not fear God the way you should? Don't you see all of the spirit given wisdom and counsel and strength and knowledge and fear that you need for your issues right now is available to you at this very moment. That you don't have to wait until Christ returns to have your life changed. That you must not wait until then. You need to know that there is nothing that you need that is not right now available to you at this very moment. And where it is available is through the means of the sacred text. You know that, right? That Christ rules and changes his people through the spirit-given power of his word. That the word of God is not just a piece of literature, but that it is a portal to the very power and presence of God himself. I'm not saying that just merely reading the Bible changes your life, but I am saying that any chapter carefully read and studied will have the power to overcome any issue in your life, anything. It is available to you. But that brings us to the fourth feature of the King. The fourth feature of the king, number four, the remarkable abilities of the king. The remarkable abilities of the king. Notice what the king is able to do when he shows up, verses 3 and 4. It says, his delight will be in the fear of Yahweh, but he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not decide by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor with righteousness, and he will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will slay. The wicked. You notice the echo from verse 2, the, the theme of fear there. His delight will be in the fear of Yahweh. Literally, that word is to smell with delight. Not only will it delight him personally to fear Yahweh, but it will bring him delight when the people in his kingdom fear Yahweh. Yahweh, which means, which means what will delight the heart of Christ in his kingdom and what does delight the heart of Christ now in his church is not our performance or titles or achievements or degrees or some legacy where we win the admiration of men, but whether or not we tremble before God as matchless and supreme. Do you fear God? I'm not looking for a show of hands, but do you fear God? And by that I mean, do you tremble before God as the treasure of your soul? Is who God is so real to you that you have a profound God consciousness that knows that no matter where you're standing, you are standing on holy ground. Why? Because God is there. And I'm sure you notice the activities of the king when he rules the planet. The same two words appear in verses 3 and 4. Notice, namely, uh, judge and decide. When he shows up, judgments will be made, decisions will be rendered. Think about it. Christ is going to return to this very planet, and he will say yes and no to things. He will make plans. He will make decrees. He will make policies. He will make changes, global changes that will transform every aspect of society when he arrives. But you notice those things are not done in the typical way that those things are done because verse 3, although he will judge, it will not be by what he sees with his eyes. Although he will decide and make decisions, it will not be based on what he hears with his ears. Meaning what? Meaning he is not like us. I think what we're seeing here is a glimpse of his deity. We're getting a a glimmer, a a peek into his divinity. In other words, in the kingdom, he will do what he does, not as a really gifted, exceptional man, but rather as God incarnated as a man. This is God, and this is man. This is the God-man. And he will not be ruling in some ethereal realm out there in the metaverse somewhere, but he will be on the earth in the future, making all things be the way they ought to be. I mean, you think about what will it be like to have a king who every judgment made and every decision decided will be made with perfect, infinite knowledge of everything forever. That nothing will escape the notice of his piercing, penetrating vision that when the king arrives, he will have the exact right solution to every dilemma in the history of the planet, which includes, by the way, verse 4, poverty and affliction, deprivation and misery, sorrow and pain and suffering and famine and anguish and every single thing left over the ruin left over by the fall that mankind has never been able to cure, he will cure. And when he says to judge the poor, he doesn't mean condemn the poor. He means bring justice to the poor. And when he says the poor, listen very carefully, he does not mean socioeconomic status in and of itself, but he means poor people who are poor precisely because they believe in Yahweh. When he's talking about the afflicted here, he does not mean merely people who are afflicted in and of themselves. He's talking about people who are afflicted precisely because of their allegiance to Yahweh. It has always been expedient and politically advantageous to persecute God's people. That's exactly what Isaiah is talking about. This is the persecuted. And he will deliver them. You know, the book Fox's Book of Martyrs has a very thick and very old book from the 1500s, and it is a collection of narratives about our comrades throughout history, and every single narrative ends exactly the same with the bloody and brutal persecution and murder of one of our people. In Revelation 6, we get this picture of these tribulation martyrs under the altar, and they cry out to God, and they say, How long? How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you avenge and judge those who murdered us? How long? How long is it going to be, Lord? How long before you bring vengeance upon those who killed us? And you understand, the answer to that question is right here in Isaiah chapter 11 when the Messiah returns to bring justice to his people. And you think about it here, what we are watching. Think about, just, just take a step back and think about what it is that we are seeing. We are watching the, a sneak preview of the end of the world and the beginning of a new one. And just seeing this in the text, just knowing, knowing that this is the finish line of history and how this is going to end radically reorients our priorities in the present, doesn't it? It has to. It must. Our priorities, our passions, our perspectives, our our pursuits, the question is, do you have anything in your life that makes zero sense in light of the kingdom and the age to come? What I'm asking is, what pursuits... What priorities, what passions, what perspectives do you have in your life that are literally irrational and illogical in light of the future global reign of Jesus Christ? Is there anything? You have to do some inventory because you have to understand when we we are gripped by the kingdom preview of how the world is going to end, the glitter of gold fades in its glory, doesn't it? When we are gripped for how the world is going to end, the fear of death fades in its power, doesn't it? When we are gripped by this kingdom vision, the thrill of lust loses its deceptive appeal, does it not? When we live with the glow of eternity on our face, we witness to the world that there is something to live for. There is something worth giving everything for that there is a matchless king who rules the universe and no matter what it is that happens to you, he will always bring you safe into his sovereign, invincible kingdom. But it will not be smiles for everyone when he comes because as they say, the price of peace is war. War. And war is exactly what the high king will wage when he comes, when he takes his stand on the earth. Look at verse 4 again. Yes, he will rescue the poor. Yes, he will save the afflicted. But he would also strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. And you know what they say, don't you? You should never bring a knife to a gunfight. But in against the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes, it doesn't matter what you bring to the fight because you're going to lose and you're going to lose everything. Because when King Jesus comes to claim his throne, it's really clear in the text, he's coming for combat, isn't he? He's coming for conflict. Notice the parallelism in the text. Look very carefully. Verse 4, strike the earth, slay the wicked. That's a parallel. Rod of his mouth, breath of his lips. That's a parallel. What does it mean? It means that the warrior king will slaughter the forces of evil upon the earth when he arrives. This is real. These are people that will be murdered justly and rightly. And no one will weep. You notice the weapons that he wields are not those held in his hands, but those which come out of his mouth. Which means even his words will have death-dealing power. Jesus Christ spoke men into existence at the beginning, but here at the end, he will speak them out of existence. Because when armies go to war, they arm themselves with guns and bombs and tanks and fighter jets and all the latest of Technology, But when King Jesus goes to war, all he needs to do is speak. Psalm 45 cries out to the Messiah. Gird on your sword, O warrior. Your arrows are sharpened and in the heart of your enemies. Psalm 110 says that the Messiah will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Revelation 19 says that a sword will come out of his mouth. He will strike down the nations and he will trample them in the winepress of his fury. This is real and this is good and this is right. I don't want you to misunderstand. I don't want you to get me wrong. Judgment and wrath are not the only good reasons to repent and believe in Christ there are others also there are glorious innumerable treasures of redemption available to ruin sinners poor and needy by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone there is every compelling reason in the universe if you do not belong to Jesus Christ to yield and bow down to him in thirsty repentance and faith. But you see, among those compelling reasons to submit and surrender and to yield to the king are judgment and wrath. Psalm 2, verse 12, calls and warns, kiss the Lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. The question is, the question is, very carefully, have you kissed the son with the kiss of faith? Have you stopped trusting in your own works? And in your own righteousness to try to obtain salvation? Have you stopped doing that? Do you see that being good is not good enough to appease the wrath of God? Do you understand that sin is an infinitely evil crime against an infinitely worthy God which deserves an infinite punishment? Do you see that the only remedy for the wrath that burns against sinners is a substitute to stand in their place? Do you see that the love of God sent the Lamb of God to take the wrath of God to make sons of God? And if you have not done so, are you ready to yield to the King? and submit to him in thirsty, hungry repentance, and faith, and allegiance. Which brings us finally to the fifth feature of the king. Number five. The righteous character of the king. The righteous character of the king. Because you know, I know, righteous kings and rulers are hard to come by these days. Aren't they? Fauci lies gets away with it. I'm serious. The president legislates and lobbies for one abomination after another. School boards seem hell-bent to indoctrinate and poison and brainwash little kids with porn and extremely divisive social justice ideology. And the new Supreme Court nominee lets sex predators off the hook and doesn't even know what a woman is. These are interesting days to live in as America eats itself to death and dies in obscurity. And yet there's an upside. There's an upside to living under rulers who are increasingly unrighteous, fascist, and deceptive. There is is an advantage to that. There is an upside to that, namely, that it increases our hunger to live under a king who will not be that way, which is exactly what we see in verse 5. Look at the text. Starting in verse 3, You notice that his delight will be in the fear of Yahweh. That's different. He will make sovereign, perfect judgments over all things. That's incredible. He will judge the poor with righteousness. He will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, slay the wicked. Here it is, verse 5. And righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness will be the belt about his waist. It is interesting, isn't it? But although I question if many of the founding fathers were true, authentic believers, their theology was good enough where they understood that it was suicide to give all the power to one person, didn't they? That's why they invented a, an ingenious, precarious balance, a system of, of balance, checks and balances because they knew all too well that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Absolutely. And yet, and yet, when God's own glorious king comes to take the throne that's rightfully his, it will be finally safe at last to give all power to one person over the entire planet. And it will be because he is righteous and he is What is righteousness? What does it mean that he will be righteous? What does it mean that he will be faithful? Righteousness, you understand, that's not a mere synonym for morality. It doesn't merely mean that he does the right thing. No, you know what righteousness is? It means that you live for the glory of God in the secret moments of your life when no one can see you except God. That's righteousness. What is faithfulness? What is faithfulness? But, but to have unwavering, unquenchable zeal to uphold the word of God, what he has spoken in his word, no matter the cost to your lives. That is faithfulness. And being God, the root of Jesse will be perfectly righteous, perfectly faithful. In fact, he will wear those things like a belt. Now, I'm no fashion guru, but I know that belts hold the outfit together. And in the global reign of the king, what will hold the kingdom together will be righteousness and faithfulness. The question is, I close with this. The question is, do you trust your king? Do you trust him with your life? Do you trust him with your soul? Do you trust him with your very eternity? Do you trust Him to be for you all that you need for life and for your soul's deepest satisfaction? Do you believe this morning that every single moment of your lives are governed by the loving rule of the Lord Jesus Christ? There are no accidents, there are no mistakes. There's no such thing as luck or karma. There there are no coincidences coincidences in the world. All there is is the infinite authority and dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? I close with this. When we rightly consider what God has spoken in his word and what he has revealed to come at the end of the age, we find that the fears which were previously so gripping to us Fade into oblivion. Don't they? Because all the courage needed. To face the unknown. And the greatest terrors. Of a fallen world. Come not. Come not. From an inner spring of moral resolve. But from a clear perception. Of true reality. Namely that one day. In the future. Paradise will be regained. And the root. Of. Jesse will make it right. That's a preview. That's a trailer. And it gives us something to live for. Let's pray. O great king from the root of Jesse and a branch from his roots, we declare to you, and admire and worship you for your supremacy. And love you for your sovereignty. And Lord, we have this nostalgia in our souls for that kingdom that you will bring. We want to be there right now. It sounds familiar to us because that's what, that's what mankind had in the beginning. And we want it back. And yet, O oh Lord, you have given us a mission until then namely to get as many people as possible into that future kingdom. And so I pray for this precious flock, that you would empower them, that you would free them, that you would liberate them from the entanglements of this fading world and that you would give them an appetite for the one to come. And that they would live with the glow of eternity on their face. That they would witness to the world that there is something to live for. That there is something worth giving everything for. I pray for their priorities. I pray for their passions. I pray for their perspectives. I pray for their pursuits. That they would be different. That they would be kingdom-like. And you would use them as powerful agents in your global cause. And it's in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray.